Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Ted Divine for November 26, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited for the show tonight in about 20 minutes. Uh, one of our most frequent and favorite guests, will join us to discuss uh, Tar Heel State politics, Dr. Michael Bitzer from Catawba College up there in North Carolina. He'll be on to talk to us about several things going on up just north of us up the road. But until then, we've got a bunch of topics and a few things we won't discuss, but we just hadn't had time, and we're finally getting to them, but they're just too good of topics to not have on record. And the first one, and guys, y'all are going to have to help me because I don't want to miss any rounds or incidences or angles, to use a pro wrestling term, of what went on in the past few weeks between Republicans. And I won't say Republicans and Democrats because I'm not sure a single Democrat was involved in any of these incidences. Um, I guess one was not technically a, a, a maybe a Democratic ally, but we'll get to that. So let's start right off, and if I go out of order, just stop me and, and back me up. But I want to start off with um, Kevin McCarthy. Um, he was in the um, halls of the of the House chambers or the House of the Capitol building, and Tim Burchett, and make sure I get my right person. Uh, from Tennessee, and I think we've discussed Representative Burchett in the um, in past weeks. He's from the he's from Tennessee, and I want to say more of the Knoxville area. He apparently right. was one of the people that voted against um, Kevin McCarthy uh, in the initial motion to vacate that was successful. And so he's walking by, and it was reported that people saw it, and that. Representative Burchett noticed it immediately that Kevin McCarthy elbowed him as he walked by. This turned into a verbal altercation, and I believe there may have been somebody having to hold uh, Representative Burchett back. I don't want to oversell what happened, but it was definitely not what we would call part of decorum. Um, Tim, uh, I know that you may add some details. You may kind of clean up something I've forgotten that happened before the Thanksgiving holiday, but but tell us, you know, add the details and then tell us your thoughts on it. Well, yeah, one one thing that uh, brought it to everyone's attention immediately was was you know he was standing there in the process of being interviewed, uh, and the lady had interviewed him several times and. She saw it happen, and you know, rep, uh, the representative lot lurched toward her. She thought it was some kind of joke everybody was playing, 
as it turned out, it was no joke uh, because he he turned around immediately and said something and then went to chasing him down the hall, hollering at him. And uh, McCarthy, of course, said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. But, but just too many people saw it. He had an old, a whole entourage with him, McCarthy did, and uh, it, it was in the <laughs> middle of a crowded hall. So, you know, ever, everybody saw it. And, uh, I mean, it's like a high school prank or something, man. I mean, uh, good grief, why would you do something like that? Just acting like kids about stuff, and it's embarrassing to the country, and I just... I just wish some of these people would grow up. This this is just this is just ridiculous. Not only that they did it, but but that you know the the media and you know the political shows and all uh, from ours on up all over the country are talking about it. And you know that means that people in other countries see it too, and it just adds the fuel to the fire of what. What are they doing over there in America? So, you know, there's nothing good to say about that at all. Yes. Now, Catherine, um, people have speculated that Kevin McCarthy, after getting pushed from leadership, and probably not the way we do business, once you pick a majority leader, unless they do something, you know, egregious and, and some kind of ethics violation, they finish out that um, session of Congress. See, so kind of like, well, maybe the, the process was not the way the process has gone. But even if the process doesn't go like it should, you can't act this way. So how does Kevin McCarthy continue to stay in the House long term? And by long term, I don't mean the rest of this term. I mean moving forward because he has not announced that he is resigning or um, not seeking reelection. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is just like, like Tim said, it's like junior high school um, kids, you know, romping around in the hallways. Um, I don't know how he will, how he could run, but if, if, I mean, if his constituents are happy with him, then they're happy with him. So it's not, it's hard for us to imagine that considering the, um, well, for, especially for me, considering the representative that I have, but I don't know how I don't know how it happens that people get elected. I mean, all of them. Like, how do, how do any of these Republicans get elected? It's a mystery to me. Yes. Now um, I'm going to move on to the next one. Chronologically, I'm not sure this was the next incident to happen, but this is the one that came with video. This is the one that came with a referee, um, and so to me, it, I guess it was the most main event of all of these because of those factors. But um, Oklahoma Senator, Junior Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, um, he apparently, because there's a backstory here, um, the head of the Teamsters Union, Sean O'Malley, did I get that right? Sean O, tell me out, Tim. Leader of the Teamsters. I, I can't. I can't think of it, David. I'll be honest. I want to say it is I'm, Sean O'Malley, I'm but, but it's. Uh, it's that sounds, I will that say sounds it like is a, a good un, union leader name. It is. It is a ethnically common um, Sean O'Brien. 
Sean O'Brien. Sean O'Brien. Okay, we want to get it right. Sean O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been invited to any of the Teamsters meetings lately. Um, so, so he, Sean O'Brien had tweeted um, in the past about Mark Wayne Mullen and the fact that Mark Wayne Mullen apparently has some issues with his height compared to the person he ran um, against in the general election in a debate, and he had a box to make him appear taller. And so um, Sean O'Brien kind of called him out on a tweet, I don't know how many months, weeks, possibly years, given that it was at a debate, about this. And so um, Senator uh, Senator Mullen, um, he, you know, used the um, hearing that was going on as a chance to challenge Sean O'Brien. He said, this is a time and this is a place. Why don't we get it on right here? Stands up, and I think it was like, you stand up first, you stand up. Apparently both of them stood up. And uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who was the um, chairman of the committee or the, in the hearing, basically said, sit down, you're a United States senator. Uh, no, there was no altercation at that time, even though that was a time and that was a place. Um, it was not a boxing or wrestling ring or an octagon, so there was no uh, physical altercation that took place. But definitely an embarrassing moment for the U.S. Senate because – well, we can criticize part of this that Sean O'Brien may have been involved in. Sean O'Brien does not represent any of our 50 states as a U.S. senator, and I think that's a key point to remember in all this. Um, Catherine, what was your take on this altercation, which was, I guess everyone that was politically connected saw? Well, first of all, who challenges the head of the uh, a union head to anything like what kind of craziness is that and in the middle of a of a hearing or at the beginning or end or whatever it was in a hearing it's ridiculous these people just don't know how to behave they they just don't know how to behave and i i don't know how they don't get called out on it uh because so many people are seeing it it's like Tim said, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for these things to happen, and I, I don't. I, I don't. I just don't get it. I don't know how they get away with it. Yeah, and, and uh, Tim, I guess it all starts with the height thing, where he had to have a box. The only thing I don't understand is that this time and place in Oklahoma, seemingly a five-foot Republican could beat a seven-foot Democrat, given, and talking about at the ballot box, given the political leanings of that state. I don't know why he felt like he had to have the box for an electoral reason unless it was a more of a vanity reason, and that may have been what um, Sean O'Brien was calling out. Well, it could be uh, it, it, Mullen's background. He's a former mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, so he's got that sort of mentality. I mean, he he told someone who interviewed him later about this. I, I'm not afraid of fighting. I'll fight. I'll bite. What is he talking about? Uh, and the, you know, the team, the president of the Teamsters tried to tell him, you know, I, I wasn't talking about physically fighting. I was talking about you sitting down having coffee with me, and. Uh, 
Bernie Sanders said it right, you know, you're a United States senator. You need to act like a United States senator. What did he do instead? He went in front of every microphone that he could. Uh, you know, he said, I'll bite 100% in a fight. I'm going to bite. I'll do anything. I'm not above it, and I don't care where I bite. By the way, I mean, a United States senator. Uh, I mean, what is he talking about, biting Mike Tyson's ear or, or and Evander Holyfield's ear like Mike Tyson did? This was a Senate hearing. And, you know, he needs to settle down and be a senator. The you, you just don't see this sort of thing in the United States Senate, or you haven't seen it since before the Civil War when Senator right. Sumner was chained. Uh, it, it's hard to find words to, to put it into a political context to even talk about it because, again, this is so childish that that he would actually – pull a stunt like this. I, I just uh, about run out of adjectives to describe this sort of thing, hadn't you, Catherine? Yes, absolutely. It's embarrassing and uh, ridiculous. Yeah, and I'll tell you, after the fact, after this happened, I saw, you know, on social media, people that were leaning to the right were talking about how tough Mark Wayne Mullen is and how he can beat up Sean O'Brien. And I saw people on the left talking about how tough a union head that is Irish and they'd love to see him, what he would do to Mark Wayne Mullen. And I'm sitting there going, well, I have no clue anything about Mark Wayne Mullen's MMA career. didn't even know he had one. So I have no judgment of that. And I have no judgment of Sean O'Brien. And you know what? It's irrelevant. They're supposed to be adults that can discuss issues and solve problems for the nation, not get out their petty disagreements in the U.S. Senate hearing rooms. But you're you're talking about, like, reality. (laughs) Mullen is on Fox News now. Hannity's talking to him, and he says, look, if I didn't challenge Senate, Senate witnesses to fist fights, the people of Oklahoma would be upset with me. Could, could somebody explain to me how that is attached to reality at all? Well, I wanted I to get into this question <laughs> later. But I wanted to get into this question later, or this thought process after we talked about our congresswoman from northwest georgia and what she said about oh, somebody God. else but let's keep moving. we'll get into that in a minute if we got time but let's get into this i think it gets into the primary process on the republican side and somebody can say oh you're being a partisan no democrats were involved in this so this is a republican issue that they have to look at but i think there's so much of this owning the libs and how tough you can be, and everything is gravitas and anger. Therefore, the people that they go see at their political meetings want this kind of behavior. Now, that the people at an Oklahoma Republican event or whatever state we want to talk about,
about or district want to talk about is probably a minuscule portion of that voting electorate. But that's what some of those people want. And so that's where I think he's taking his cues from, um, which is sad. And that's why the people of Oklahoma, the people of whatever district, are going to have to say, even if it's in the Republican primary, we need adult behavior. We're going to have to find people that want to solve problems and talk about issues. Even if those solutions are a bit more conservative than the three of us would like, at least work on real issues, not your petty problems about how somebody pointed out that you had a foot-and-a-half box or whatever to stand on during the debate. Um, I think that's the core of this issue. What do you think of that analysis, Catherine? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you, but I don't think it would make any difference. I don't think that um, I don't think that people look at this in the same way that you and I and Tim and most of the you know logical and uh, thoughtful people look at it. It's all a big game to them, and they want someone who's going to be, you know, tough on the on on whoever you know, whether it's a union leader or another Democrat. They want they want this uh, tension. They think that's what makes them good. Whereas we but, believe that in compromise and you know, logical discussion. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Tim, let's let's get further into this since we probably can't get into any more of the real incidences um, and break them down. So let's get into this. Um, if you look at the latest, you know, congressional ballot test, you know, who do you want for Congress, a Democrat or Republican? Republicans have a slight lead. Um, some of them are tied, even with this behavior. So this behavior does not seem to be hurting them, not only in their primary polls, but in the general election, um, you know, metrics we see. Well, gerrymandering, as you know, has taken care of a lot of that. I mean, David, you and I live in a district where if uh, Satan ran as a Republican, uh, they would win. You know that, and and that that's the way that districts are divided around this country. There are districts, especially in large cities, that is that are just as solidly democratic as this district is solidly whatever it is. Uh, again, I run <laughs> out of adjectives to describe a certain thing. But you know something, David? We talked about recently. And I want to bring this up because of you, because you knew this adversary up close and personal, and that's Newt Gingrich. We can trace a lot of this back to him, can't we? He was one of the first ones to say, don't just say you disagree with your opponent on policy. Say they're sick. Say they're mentally unbalanced. Say they're animals that need to be put down. Say they're un-American, blah, blah, blah. You know all of that. You saw it. And we bring it to the modern age uh, with this Freedom Caucus, and they've always been bomb throwers, just like he was. And even in their own ranks, there are about six or eight of them that that simply want to wreck the system and don't want to even work with their own Freedom Caucus friends. Uh, 
you 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 combine all of that with with the tension that's going on in an evenly divided U.S. House of Representatives, for instance, and in most cases that just means total gridlock and more tension and fighting. And there are some that seem to thrive on that. Don't you believe a lot of it goes back to that person that you fought in the political fields all those years yeah, ago? I, I think it, and I see what you're saying in style uh, and tone, but then he, and this is even his friend of politics on steroids. And another thing I will rec- you know, remind everybody is this was Oklahoma. You can't redistrict or gerrymander Oklahoma. Um, it's a state, but they seem to want this. They seem to want this in Missouri with Josh Hawley. Um, we can keep naming places. I think Ted Cruz wants to try to channel this in his race in Texas. I just don't know if Ted can pull it off um, the same way. Well, let's go ahead and bring it back to the, the southeast, and let's talk about North, North Carolina politics with our guest joining us from too many times to count, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Welcome, Dr. Bitzer. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, I think this is our first time having you on since um, that election preview we had in 2022. So it's been um, right out of, you know, maybe even a little over. So good to get you back on because we know in North Carolina, you not only have the presidential race, you not only have all the congressional races, but y'all have y'all's governor's race during the presidential year. And that seems to be the one bright spot for Democrats in North Carolina over the past, I don't know, several cycles. Uh, Dr. Bisser, how has North Carolina, while they lost the presidential vote 2012-16-20, they've lost Senate seats, um, how do they manage to hang on to the governor's mansion until this point? I think that this is a classic North Carolina, um, shall we say, bipolar political behavior uh, that goes back to the 1970s uh, when the South was realigning itself, going from the solid Democratic South to what we now basically see as a very solid Republican South in most of the states. North Carolina was able to differentiate between federal races and state races. And I think the classic dynamic is just looking back, we'll be now 20 years going back uh, to the 2004 presidential election. Uh, This state voted for George W. Bush, the Republican, for re-election as president by 13 percentage points. In the exact same election, North Carolinians voted for the Democratic governor running for re-election, Mike Easley, by 13 percentage points. So we had this wide swath of North Carolina voters that were basically swing voters. They would, they would be Republican at the federal level, and they would swing to the Democratic side at the state level. That percentage has dropped tremendously now. But I think Democrats still are able to break that Republican top-of-the-ballot dynamic and secure the governor's races with those 3 to 5% of the electorate that are swing voters. Yes. Now, we know that your current governor, Roy Cooper, he is um, term-limited, 
so he can't seek re-election. you got two sides to this. There's one person that I find fascinating to talk about, but let's actually talk about both sides of this primary. And on the Democratic side, you have the uh, sitting attorney general, um, but you also have the um, some other candidates in the race, uh, I guess a retired Supreme Court justice. Um, there may be others jumping in. How does the Democratic primary shape up? Well, I think for a long time in this cycle, the conventional wisdom in the state has been uh, the North Carolina Attorney General, Josh Stein, is seen as the front runner. He has certainly raised the requisite amount of money that's going to be needed for this kind of a race. But you're right, a uh, now-retired state Supreme Court Associate Justice, Mike Morgan, an African-American Democrat has jumped into the race as well. The question is, can he raise the same amount of money, and will he be able to compete with Stein having you know, certainly secured a, a pretty healthy statewide name recognition? Certainly Morgan was able to do that with his races for the state Supreme Court. But the, the real key in terms of Democratic Party politics is, of course, as with a lot of the South, the African-American vote. And I think it's going to be interesting to kind of watch where the polling shows that support going for Stein or for Morgan. Yes. Um, so we'll kind of watch that. Uh, and, there, and on the other side, there's the Republican primary. Now, you have the sitting lieutenant governor, the sitting state treasurer, and I guess some other, you know, candidates that have been elected to at least district office. How's that Republican side shaping up? Yeah, I think on the Republican side, we've again got a conventional wisdom front runner, and that is the lieutenant uh, governor, uh, Mark Robinson, uh, can be very controversial on the campaign stump. Uh, he has he has said a lot of things that that raise eyebrows in terms of you know who he is appealing to. He is very much a social conservative, and that plays very strongly to the Republican Party base in this state. And I think he's also endemic of the Trump factor within this state. Uh, I look at the Republican Party. If you just go back a year ago to the primary election for U.S. Senate. Uh, you had two candidates that were obviously in the Trump lane of Republican Party politics, and combined they got two-thirds of the primary vote. Uh, those folks kind of outside that lane, kind of more, say, moderate to conservative in leanings, uh, the, the candidate in that uh, election in 2022 only got a quarter of the vote. So I think, again, the conventional wisdom is on the front runner, Mark Robinson. He is facing the state treasurer, Dolph, uh, Dale Falwell, who's got the statewide name ID. But the question is, does he have what it takes to appeal within the Republican Party primary? Uh, we've also got a businessman here from here in Salisbury, uh, Bill Graham, who is running as well. He has pledged to put in $5 million of his own money into the campaign. So this has a campaign kind of like on the Democratic side to to be one to watch in terms of who is appealing to the core base 
within the Republican Party, and that is very much the Trump voter who is a social evangelical conservative. Yes, now, and, and something I have um, discussed with people, and I don't think we've had a chance to discuss it since we didn't know that this race would shape up like this, but you have an interesting dynamic. You have African-American Mark Robinson, who is very much, I guess, outside the political mainstream, um, or what we used to call the political mainstream, but he would be the first African-American if he gets elected governor. You... um. So, therefore, you have this dynamic. Let's say he's the nominee, and let's say Josh Stein is the nominee. What percent – and I'm just a two-parter – what percent of the African-American vote do you think he could then garner because he would be the first African-American governor? And at the same time, how much of the very moderate Republican white vote could he possibly kind of scare away because he's so far outside the mainstream? We had this a little bit in Georgia, although Herschel Walker was running against another African-American, so that mitigated it. But this is a much more clean um, dynamic in North Carolina you're going to have. You're exactly right, and you're asking me to gaze into my crystal ball, which cracked in 2016. <laughs> so I have not been able to find a repair person to uh, to fix that particular device. So I'm I'm going to go on speculation here. Uh, I, I think certainly Robinson's you know campaign, if he decides to truly go after the African American vote could be interesting because generally within that group of voters, uh, they tend to be socially conservative. Uh, you know, they, they are, you know, very hesitant when it comes to things like gay marriage and, and those kinds of, of social cultural issues. Now, whether he can truly break the stranglehold that Democrats have, that typically 90% of black voters will vote Democratic in this state, you know, that, that's going to be a real test, I think, of his dynamic at play. I think on in terms of the moderate white vote that typically does tend to lean Republican, uh, I would be watching for the areas of what I would call the urban suburbs, urban counties that uh, have areas outside of the central city, the Charlottes in Mecklenburg. Uh, the Raleigh's in Wake County, you know, outside of those central cities, but still inside those urban areas, the, the urban counties, those are the most competitive region of the state. And I think if Stein is able to pull and perhaps win those urban suburbs, that might be a buffer against any potential uh, black voter loss that he could suffer to Robinson. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're a little bit less than a, a year away, and there is a lot that will play out here in North Carolina between now and then. Yes, I think this may be the most interesting governor's race that will be happening in 2024. Um, but we know there's other things that go in North Carolina, so I want to pass it to Catherine. We'll pass it to Tim to ask about some of those. Catherine? Sure. Hey, thank you for being on the show tonight. We appreciate you having being here. Um, I wanted to Anytime. ask you. I wanted to ask you about um, redistricting. So I tried to prepare for this a little bit, but I got to tell you, 
I got a little confused <laughs> about what the status is of both your slate of map, your you know state maps and your um, federal maps. So where where where's everything at? Like what's the what's the scoop? Well, you you are not alone in terms of the confusion when it comes to redistricting <laughs> here in North Carolina. I actually wrote a book over the past 40 years of redistricting in this state. And what's interesting, just as a kind of 30,000-foot view, is that North Carolina, since the 1990s, has never gone through a 10-year, decade-long period without at least one map having to be redrawn. And so redistricting is, is almost a kind of Every two to four years, North Carolinians know, okay, this map isn't going to hold for much longer because we got lawsuits coming out the wazoo. Uh, (laughs) We do have a new set of maps for both the Congressional and State House and State Senate because a previous decision decided by a Democratic State Supreme Court majority got overturned by a subsequent Republican state Supreme Court majority. And with that decision that basically said partisan gerrymandering, state courts can't get involved because that's what's called a political question that's best left up to the legislature, the legislature decided to redistrict all of the maps and have basically drawn them by my analysis to be super majorities for the Republicans. In a state that is pretty much a 50-50 divide, the, the congressional delegation, by all accounts, probably will be at least a 10-4 Republican uh, congressional delegation, as opposed to now a 7-7 split. And the likelihood is we will see at least super majority numbers in the state Senate and potentially also in the state house. And that means Republicans would be able to easily override, if they have party unity, any veto that comes from a Democratic governor. So right now, the maps as they stand are very much inclined to the Republican Party, but we've already got the lawsuits filed on at least one set of maps for the state Senate. So I would caution people outside of North Carolina, just sit back and watch it unfold because we're used to this here in the old North State. (laughs) Well, I also saw that because of a um, comment by uh, Justice Gorsuch that um, there may be some question about who can actually sue around redistricting. And do you think that's going to have any impact on – are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think you're referring to um, Section 2 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act and yeah. that there is currently a, a case working its way up. I think it's out of the Eighth Circuit uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court about whether private individuals can file lawsuits uh, challenging things like redistricting when they believe – it has unfairly diluted, say, black voters and their voting power. Is it just the federal government that can only bring those kinds of lawsuits? Uh, we, we are indeed watching that very closely here in North Carolina because I think 
you know, one of the only venues now by which to challenge these kinds of maps is based on racial gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering has been excluded by both the federal courts and state courts. And so we're left now with racial gerrymandering as a possible entry point for judicial intervention and review. And if they cut down uh, Section 2 of the, of the 65 Voting Rights Act, you know, that's going to leave it on the you know, impetus of the Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice, to file these kinds of lawsuits, I think. Yeah, and they don't have time to for all of them that are across the country. Right. So, yeah. Okay, well, that's really helpful and, and uh, great information. Now I'm going to pass it to Tim. Thank you so much. Hello. Good evening, sir. Thank you for being with us again. Um, My pleasure. I'm 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 gonna go from from memory, so bear with me. I, I hope I'm right about this, but if I'm not mistaken, North Carolina has voted only once for the Democratic presidential candidate since 19 like 1980, and, and I believe it was Barack Obama in 2008. And you are yet, correct. And yet. I keep hearing pundit after pundit after pundit after pundit on the Sunday morning talk shows and some other places describing North Carolina as a presidential battleground state. Mm -hmm. Is that true? And if so, (laughs) considering the results in the past, why, why? Why is that true? Those are great questions, and I would answer the first question with, yes, we are a presidential battleground state. Uh, The way that I generally tend to describe North Carolina, particularly statewide, especially at things like the presidential level, is the margin of victory in this state will likely be within the margin of error of all of the polls. And what we're talking about typically is a three percentage point or less difference between Republicans winning and Democrats winning. And I think what that shows in terms of the dynamic behind that is that North Carolina is the bluest Republican state, uh, typically at the presidential level. And the reason for that is because registered Republicans generally exceed the state turnout rate by anywhere from five to six percentage points. So in North Carolina in 2020, for example, we had three quarters of all registered voters show up to vote, 75%. It was a huge, huge turnout for us. Registered Republicans turned out at 81%. Registered Democrats turned out at 75%. And the biggest group of registered voters in this state right now are what are called unaffiliated voters, and they typically tend to be anywhere from four to five percentage points below the state average. And they were well down. So I think where you see Republicans continuing to win, at the, particularly at the presidential level, is because they will recast the electorate from the registered voter pool 
to a much more favorable Republican, whereas Democrats only meet the state average and unaffiliated don't show up as much. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, all this, what I'm, what I'm basically getting at is this is a state where turnout matters the most. There are very few voters that you can persuade that you could potentially push one way or the other by the time you get to November's general election. What matters is getting your voters out, and that's the key to unlocking the dynamic of North Carolina, along with that very small percentage of swing voters. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know the results of the 2020 election that Donald Trump won. I want to guess at about close to 75,000 votes, but I could be wrong about that as well. Uh, let's say on election night, Joe Biden wins North Carolina. Is turnout going to be the reason that he won it if he wins it? Or would it be a certain voting block broke heavily to him? Yeah, I, I would actually say probably a little bit of both. I would say mm-hmm. that turnout certainly is a dynamic that I think most North Carolina Democrats recognize they've got to do a better job at because Republicans continuously beat them at their own game. But the other dynamic that I am very closely watching, I think, and this could have national ramifications as well, is a generational tectonic shift going on. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is basically for next year, anybody under the age of 44, and that means millennials for the most part, but then Gen Z that's entering into the electorate, by all national accounts and by some numbers that I've run here in this state, they are very much a Democratic-oriented voting bloc. They, Mm -hmm. again, in this state, don't tend to show up at levels, say, of baby boomers, who are overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. a Republican bloc. So Mm -hmm. I think if this kind of tectonic shift, if if more folks, if more younger voters tend to show up, or middle-aged voters now, and of course the older voters, well, we know know, where they're progressing towards. Uh, If their numbers are slightly down, uh, that, that means that Democrats, if they play their cards right, can do that shift of 75,000 votes and make up that ground. Okay. Funny you should mention the youth vote. You have a state Democratic Party chair that I want to ask you about, uh, named of Anderson Clayton, who's every bit of 25 years old. I believe she's the youngest (laughs) party chair in the United States, she defeated uh, a 73-year-old incumbent for the job. Mm -hmm. Why did the Democratic Party turn to her? And obviously, it's not experience that she brings to the job. What does she bring to the table that's so desirable to the party? Yeah, it it, it was a pretty significant shift in the state's Democratic Party politics. And I think what uh, uh, Chairwoman Clayton does is bring a passion 
for two specific areas. One is that she has continuously remarked, Democrats need to do better in rural North Carolina. Uh, Democrats do extremely well in the Charlottes and the Raleigh's and the Asheville's, the major metropolitan areas. But in order to be effective, you have to stop the bleeding in rural North Carolina. Rural North Carolina has realigned itself, moved much more Republican. I think her part of her uh, agenda was to try and stop that, to, to say to rural North Carolinians, Democrats understand what your concerns are, and we're going to fight for your vote. The other aspect I think that she is intensely interested in is this youth dynamic, is this mm-hmm. shift in generational politics. And I think she represents mm-hmm. where, you know, a lot of young voters are tending to move and to see things and want to see their own in positions like chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party. So, you know, she I, I think that there was some early test cases in these off-year elections that North Carolina experienced. Uh, Democrats did particularly well in some rural communities. Yes, there were small town city council seats, but you got to start at the base of the ballot and work your way up. And it'll be interesting to see what strategy, if she tends to focus on that and continue that theme into next year's highly volatile, highly competitive uh, statewide dynamics here in this state. Well, I thank you for all that information, sir, and I'm going to pass it back to David at this time. David? Yes. Well, Dr. Bister, we thank you so much for coming on this evening. Got you off before the Simpsons come on, because we've talked in the past <laughs> about how the Simpsons and politics intersect. Oh. Uh, but before you leave us, go ahead and tell our listeners where they can read um, you on social media, maybe some of more, your more collegiate work, anything you'd like to share. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, we've got a blog, uh, myself along with three other colleagues who are political scientists at other institutions in the state, and it's called oldnorthstatepolitics.com, and we write a variety of things, but we gender, generally tend to focus here on North Carolina politics, and if you want to find me on social media, uh, I still refer to it as Twitter, and uh, my handle is bowtiepolitics. Yes. Well, we thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. And next time we need to discuss North Carolina politics sometime in 2024, we'll call on you again. Happy to do so. Thank you for the invitation. Thank Thank you you, so much. All right, Dr. Michael Bitzer, um, read his work, uh, his blog. Um, He's always gracious to come on and discuss things with us. I'm sure later in the election cycle, particularly if North Carolina does indeed manage, manifest itself into that group of roughly eight to nine swing states that the whole presidential election may, you know, circulate around, um, we're going to have to talk more about North Carolina. Of course, their governor's race, I think, is going to be the one to watch. Maybe Washington State along with them in 2024. 
Well, folks, we got time for maybe uh, one more good topic, and another one I've been wanting to talk about because for a party that loves to talk about how important the Constitution is, how they want to be strict constitutionalists, the Republicans seem to be ready to make a major change to the Constitution without actually following the Constitution. And that would be that the Constitution, as a part of the executive branch, states that there will be a vice president. They actually are elected. They're in the electoral college process to where they'll get delegates, um, uh, you know, votes in the electoral college, things like that, to be officially and constitutionally empowered once that person wins the election. All that stated, in the past few weeks, the Republicans have made multiple attempts to defund the office of the vice presidency. Tim, tell us more about what's going on here. Well, this happened a couple of weeks ago during the uh, budget fight in the House, uh, uh, funding the government, and one of the amendments uh, that was offered was by someone we know well in this state, Mike Collins from over in the, uh, who proposed an amendment uh, to basically get rid of the funding uh, for Vice President Harris's office that it would receive no funding to operate and that she and her staff would receive no salaries. And Collins said he did this because Harris failed to control the United States-Mexico border. I kid you not. That's the reason he he gave. But, but even a majority of Republicans voted against this lunacy, and it failed like 322 to 106, but I I do find it really sad, and I'm sure y'all do, that 106 Republicans thought it was a good idea and voted for it. It was the usual suspects, our our own illustrious member of Congress, David, along with Lauren uh, Bobert and uh, um, Santos and and some of that crowd. they they didn't just do this to the vice president, by the way. There were other departments as well, but this this was the one that got most of the press because, well, it was the vice president. So there we are. That's what happened. Yes, I, I just wish that Representative Collins would have listened to two of our recent shows where we've actually talked about the border and immigration and why we need immigration for job situations and how you really can't control things in the way they are and and just all kind of nonsense. But, of course, they won't because they want to use it as performative politics. Now, Catherine, let's just say they would have rounded up some more people and they get more than 106. They wouldn't have defunded Kamala Harris. They would have defunded the office of the vice presidency. Would they not have caused a – constitutional, you know, crisis issue by defunding something that is stated as a functioning part of the U.S. government? Yes. They don't care, though. (laughs) They don't care. They'll just wait till somebody sues them. 
And they would have, that was going to be the next thing. There would have been a lawsuit, rightfully so, because they would have circumvented the um, procedures and rules of the, you know, Constitution. If you don't like the office of the vice presidency, propose an amendment. See if you can get your amendment passed and don't have a vice president. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but that's the way you actually do this, not, oh, we're just not going to, you know, pay for it. That's just. David, our own, again, illustrious, and I use that word very loosely, of course, member (laughs) of Congress, also the same day proposed an amendment to cut the IRS commissioner's salary to $1 a year, an amendment to cut the salary of Pete Buttigieg, who she called out by name, to a dollar back in September, they they actually passed an amendment to cut the Secretary of Defense's salary to a dollar. It passed on a voice vote. Of course, it was DOA over in the Senate. Uh, they they voted on over a hundred of these crazy amendments on that very day. Almost all of them went nowhere. And then they had to adjourn because they didn't have the votes to pass the, the, the funding bill that they were there to pass. Um, I mean, uh, why why am well, I well, retired and, and drawn to watching stuff like that unfold on television the entire day? <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was, it, was, it was just lunacy to watch it, and this vice presidential thing was front and center. Uh, right in the middle of it, and yes, Democrats did protest, guys, that, you know, this is kind of unconstitutional. Uh, uh, that was met with the sound of crickets chirping from the other yeah, part. Yeah, I don't yeah. care about that. Well, well, let's talk about their logic. Tim, you mentioned that they were going to pay the um, Secretary of Defense a dollar. Well, my goodness, how can we expect to secure our borders? When the D- Department of Defense, the head of it, only makes a buck. I mean, what kind of talent can we get uh, if, if, if we secure our borders? If we, you know, the Department of Defense, the uh, one of the main people that would be involved in said mission. I mean, just the, the, it is illogical. And what is so sad is that we have either a such unserious people serving in our government, and I think there's a whole lot of people that I could name that fit into list A, or B, people that could be serious but think they have such unserious and uninformed voters that they want them to be so unserious. And there are probably some people that can fit in category B. And either yes. category is so sad. We have to have yep. – Serious people that are willing to lead and show leadership, even if their followers won't always see the big picture, and followers need to just move these people on that are just not the best and the brightest. I mean, Tim, we want to talk about our district, and once again, she did call a a Republican congressman. I believe it was Chip Roy, maybe a different one. A, a part of the female anatomy, which is typically reserved for someone that lacks courage, we'll put it that way since this is a family program. So she was involved in our first topic too. But when I look at all the people that live in our area, if we lined them up one, 
to 750000 First, she wouldn't even be in the line because she's not from here. But let's just be nice and put her in line. Tim, I dare say she would not be in a five-digit number in the line. She'd be back of the line at least 100000 and I'm probably being generous. Wouldn't you say so? I would definitely say so, that we got her up here to start with. It had to be the cruelest of cruel jokes. It had to be a perfect storm of events that caused her to be here to start with. And you you know what happened. The former congressman resigned, uh, cashed in his chips on a better job like a lot of them do. Uh, and at the same time, the Republicans were wanting to win the 6th District back. They certainly didn't want her in their running against their preferred candidate, and she got uh, she got talked into the notion by Republican leadership of uh, coming up this way, and uh, the rest uh, is uh, an unfortunate history and the way the district is drawn. She can't lose. I mean, you know, let's let's say the truth. And there's districts like that all over the country. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know what to do about it. If we don't do something about gerrymandering, it is. I, I mean, and what I'm saying is I'm not saying that all of the Democrats in Georgia's 14th congressional district, I'm not lining up all of us ahead of her, probably a lot of us. Uh, I'm talking about a lot of Republicans, like the doctor yeah. that she beat in the runoff. His name escapes me because he lost so abysmally. But he was – he and I probably wouldn't agree on nine out of ten issues, or we wouldn't agree on one out of ten issues. But I know that he is far more qualified for that office than her, yet the Republican electorate, because of this same in-your-face mentality – Enough of them gravitated to her, and they do it in you know Colorado's Western District, Lauren Boebert. They do it in the Panhandle of Florida with Matt Gates. Um, we can keep going on and on and on. And sadly, there's going to be more of these folks before they're less. I don't know what the tipping point becomes, but I think it gets more uh, of these kind of folks for a while, and they're even getting into the Senate. And then finally, there hopefully hope will be some breaking point, and it subsides. Catherine, uh, since Tim and I have said more about this, anything on the last word on what causes this uh, fever dream to break? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I think about that all the time because, you know, something happens, and I'm like, well, this is the thing that's going to break it. Um, the only hope I have is that maybe abortion is going to be the thing that really breaks it. Um, maybe. It may be. I don't know. but Yeah, uh, maybe. But I, I will uh, tell you this. I think it, yeah, if it's an issue, I wonder if the Republicans, if they were to get enough control, would they get their way on Social Security and Medicare? And if they got their way on Social Security and Medicare and a lot of voters had to suffer through that, would that be what broke it? Because that's people's pocketbooks. And a lot of these voters are, you know, Let's just be honest, past reproductive age. And a lot of those voters are also voting Republican. That could be a sure-breaking yes. point. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It has to be an issue 
that they think they think one way, but they live off of another way, and that changes it all. Well, once again, we thank everybody for tuning in here in Dr. Michael Bitzer of North Carolina. Next week, another frequent guest is going to come on. Doug Kaplan of Kaplan Strategies, he's uh, switched on as his own polling firm. He's going to come on with us and talk to us about some recent polling he's conducted. In addition, he's probably going to – we're going to kind of quiz him on what are we doing to make polling a bit more accurate? What are they seeing when they manipulate this of the sample? How do they make it a more accurate sample and things like that? So it's – Flawed as polling seems in recent cycles, the science is still there. How do we we can get that into that conversation with Doug Kaplan about how we make it better? But until next week, it's been the Cuzzy Vine. Good night, Thanks, everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night. We are the heirs of that first revolution. With a strong and united America.